0: You know, a lot of people ask me, okay, so these people that made these dramatic improvements in their in their self-awareness, where did they start? What was the first thing they did? And what we uncovered was it was actually a decision. Whether, you know, the, whether they had just been fired from their job and they didn't know why. You know, there were a couple of people on our data set who whose spouses abruptly left them. Um, Or whether it wasn't that traumatic, whether it was just saying, hey, you know, I want to be more successful. I want to be more in touch with who I am and what I want and what will make me happy. Um, They made the choice to say, I understand that seeing myself with rose colored glasses might be the easier choice in the short term. You know, it's kind of like, it's like refined sugar. We eat it, it makes us feel awesome, but in the long term, there are very, very serious health consequences that we're only beginning to understand. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of see um, you know, rose-colored glasses the same way, is a lot of people live their lives without making this choice. And, you know, I I think everybody's in their own place in their journey, and that's not for any of us to judge. Sometimes it can be frustrating to work with people who are not committed to their Mm self-awareness. the beauty of this is that we all have this choice. Um, You know, our our research participants said, I am going to make a choice. It's going to require bravery, but I'm going to be wiser, and I'm going to be able to achieve all these benefits that we've been talking about. So we call it a braver but wiser mindset.
1: Welcome to the Secrets of Success Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's show is amazing. I just finished interviewing Dr. Tasha Urich. Now, Tasha has written the New York Times bestselling book, Insight. Now, one of the focuses of Insight in her work is to prove scientifically the importance of self-awareness and how it contributes to our success. Well, isn't that interesting because that is the number one anchor point or communication piece from Consulting Resource Group or CRG is that increasing our self-awareness and then our self-management leads to greater success. Well, Pasha has proven this in her research. Now, here's an interesting stat that she shares closer to the end of the show, but I'll put it in the beginning of the show here. He says that 95% of people think that they're self-aware, but however, once the data is checked, is less than t- or around 10% actually are. So most of us that are listening to the show right now think that we've got it together, that we're aware, that we're conscious about the impact we're making. and less than 10% or around 10% actually do have it together or are conscious or are self-aware about who they are. Now, and my encouragement is if you want to improve your self-awareness, then one of the vehicles to be able to do that is CRG tools and resources. And that is what we are masters at, better than just about anybody else in the world, to be able to take you to the next level. So to make this about you, is then consider and get clear about what your values are. Maybe the values preference indicator. Use our personal style indicator, personality, personnel of the assessment, the PSI. Or look at your health with the stress indicator and health planner. And by the way, it has been completely revised and version five is now out and say, let's benchmark where am I at with my wellness. So then I can go to the next level. There's so many people who, even from a wellness point of view, say, I'm fine, and then they have a heart attack the next day. So we know there's some things that are percolating underneath. Well, Tasha is delightful. So enjoy this interview with Dr. Tasha Urek. Well, today is an extremely special show. Because We've actually been trying to get this guest on for some time, and she's so popular, but also connected some other colleagues that we have in the industry, In one of the number one experts in the world in a space that Siri loves to go into, and that's around self-awareness for her brand new book is actually called Insights. We'll get into that in a moment. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ch- Tasha er- Urich. So Tasha, welcome to SOS. Thanks for having me. The pleasure. Well, it's great that you were able to kind of uh, break free some time, and so your obviously your topic and your work that you're doing is popular as you're traveling around the world to, to service other people. So appreciate you making the time to join us.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I love what I do, so it's easy to get wrapped up in in all the activity, but ultimately my number one goal in in my life and my work is to help leaders be more self-aware and successful, so happy to be here to talk about that.
1: Well, that's excellent. Now, before we get into your brand-new book, and by the way, uh, Tasha, everybody listening, is a New York York Times bestseller, so uh, really has influenced the marketplace in different ways, but we also have a common colleague in Marshall Goldsmith, Marshall was kind enough to endorse some of our work over the time and also is a big fan of Tasha, so we know that we're in good company.
0: Yes, we're both FOM, friends of Marshall. It's a worldwide <laughs> phenomenon.
1: It is, isn't it? And we I just we do, do appreciate his giving nature that he has. Oh, he is the best. So, Tasha, we're going to get into your book and, and just delve into it in detail here in a bit. But before we get there, tell us the story of Tasha. Where did she... Where did you grow up and just sort of your journey as a, as a child?
0: So, I am a uh, Denver native, born and raised. There are not very many people in Denver who uh, were born and raised here, so it's a mantle us natives wear with pride. And uh, my, uh, I grew up with both of my parents here. They were divorced and remarried, so I had the pleasure of having four parents when I grew up. I went to a wonderful school um, as a child and a young adult that really emphasized the arts and literature, and, and thankfully, it was one of the few places where, in high school, you don't get thrown into a locker for being a theater kid. It was actually like a mm. positive thing. <laughs> and so for me, that was actually where I fell in love with um, with reading and writing and, and um, speaking and theater. And so that I think really shaped me more than I even knew at the time. It, it shaped the course that I would take as an adult. And I went to study at Middlebury College, which is a liberal arts school uh, in Vermont on the East Coast. I majored in theater and psychology. And when my parents heard that I was a theater major, they basically cried. And when they heard I was a psychology major, they said, well, what the heck are you going to do with that? And at the time, I, I didn't know. And in my junior year uh, in the summer, I actually moved to New York City to take a class on something that nobody else had ever heard of called industrial organizational psychology. And it was this big mouthful of a, of a term. And, um, but I, I realized that it was kind of all of my passions coming together. My, mm. I'm a third generation, entrepreneur. My mom actually started the first school that trained and certified nannies uh, in the entire country and wow. sold that business. And uh, my grandfather had a, a, a plumbing business in Bay City, Michigan. And so this idea of business and leadership was always fascinating, as was how do people work? I've, I've always just been so fascinated with people. Mm. It's kind of the thing that, I, that I'm that i the most interested in. And so as I took this class in New York and I discovered this you know, discipline that was all the things that I loved the most I just had this moment you know it's kind of like in the first class it was taught by this really boring or not boring bored uh, Italian TA and then she just did not want to be there and I remember thinking this is the coolest thing I've ever seen (laughs) and so from there my life course was pretty much set I applied to graduate school Um, I was happy to get into one of the top IO uh, PhD programs in the country went to that knew I wanted to be a consultant and so from there I've worked in the Fortune 500 world, I've led uh, global leadership development programs, and I, about seven or eight, actually it's about eight years ago now, I went off on my own so that I could speak and write and work with amazing clients to help them
1: build more effective leaders and teams and therefore organizations. Mm. Amazing story, and thank you for all of that, Tasha. Now, can we just go back for a bit? What was the impact of, you know, having a family with four parents to you sort of emotionally? What, what's sort of the outcome of that? Because there's many people who listen who are part of, I don't want to use a word in a derogatory term, but broken homes or homes yeah. that have had that situation occur. So what, is, what did that mean to you emotionally at that age?
0: You know, I think I would be lying if I said it was easy, and the folks who are listening, who are in similar, or maybe who have similar backgrounds, will probably understand that as well. Um, But I think it's actually challenged me to make more room in my life, and to, and I've been lucky to have four, you know, wise parental figures instead of two. So mm. from my perspective, I think it's been a harder road and, you know, it's, it's never going to magically be easy, but I think, um, I'm richer and, and a better person for it. And, and hopefully they feel the same
1: way. Mm. Well, thank you for that. So when you think about going to Vermont, how did you choose that university? Where did that come from? Here you are in Denver, and all of a sudden you just wanted to be away from them as far as possible. How did you even discover that university? It's
0: it's so hard to get into the mind of a 16 year old teenager. You know, sometimes it's like, what was I doing? Isn't it so yeah, and, and it was it was the best education I could have imagined. I mean, I think it 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 worked out in so many ways. But I I was a very and I think I'm still this way to some extent. Sometimes to my detriment as I'm overly decisive. So I remember you know. Younger folks who are listening to this probably might not even know what this is, but there was this book called the Princeton Review of Colleges, and every college had one or two pages. It was kind of a summary, and I was I flipped through it. I read the whole thing, and I said, "Bam, Middlebury, that's where I'm going to go." My parents said, "Well, what do you mean? You haven't even been there yet." And I said, "Well, I'll I'll go visit it to humor you. That's fine, but um, that's where I'm going to be going." (laughs) And so it was based on just, you know, so much gut intuition and such a small slice of information. Um, But, you know, it was very different than I had grown up in kind of an urban environment, and this was a small town where uh, I think somebody once told me there are more cows than people in Vermont, which feels right. I don't know if that actually Mm. is right. Um, But it was just a very cool experience. I think it got me out of my comfort zone. Um, You know, it made me hearty. It was 30 30 degrees below zero um, Fahrenheit very often. And so it was, uh, I think it was a really good experience.
1: I'm happy I went. Okay. Well, excellent. <laughs> now, where did you go from theater to this whole idea of psychology? Was You were you were mentioning earlier, you've just always had this fascination with how people click. Is that where that was coming from?
0: You know, I think it is. I think that's a, a really good connection you just made. Because for me, whether it was uh, directing or acting, this idea of studying these characters was very similar in some respects to to studying real people, and I think the difference with psychology is that it looks at um, patterns overall. So people often say psychology is the study of averages, and that that was an extra point of fascination to me. So instead of kind of diving into one person or you know several characters in a play there's this research component, and I, I discovered pretty quickly that I'm a, a pretty hardcore data and research nerd, and I love statistics, I love research, um, this idea that you can, you know, kind of have this interesting question and then you can go scientifically answer it. Mm-hmm. Um, since since it's psychology, you know, you can't ever prove anything because it's not kind of a type of science where um, it's a type of science where there's a lot of error introduced, and you've got to kind of be careful about your conclusions, but that was always what was so fascinating to me is that empirical evidence that you could find as well.
1: Oh, cool. Cool. So now you've, you've gotten your PhD and you said you went on your own. So were you working with other firms prior to that? So
0: I, I had the great,
1: Um, just luck, really, of being able to consult
0: all the way through my five-year PhD program. I was in Fort Collins, Colorado, and uh, those of you that are beer aficionados might know that um, New Belgium Brewing Company is in Fort Collins. And I will never forget, I was about, I think I was like 26, two, maybe 23 years old. And my very first consulting assignment was to um, run the employee survey for New Belgium Brewing and report out to their CEO and executive team. And I just got the bug and I thought, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. And so I was Mm -hmm. able to do quite a bit of consulting while I was in school. And that was when I knew You know, kind of, (laughs) frankly, as much as the academic folks in our program really wanted all of us to stay on an academic track, there were, uh, you know, some people who said, I really want to go do this in the real world. And so that was where, um, when I graduated, I decided that I didn't want to be one of those consultants who had never actually worked in a company, right? A lot of consultants have consulted and they dabble, but they don't really know what the day-to-day life in an organization is like. And so Mm -hmm. that was where I went on a kind of... um, yeah, uh-huh. but Self-imposed exile into the Fortune 500 world because I really wanted to understand, you know, what is that day-to-day life like? What does it mean to, um, you know, support the success of one company? Uh, and and it was just such a great experience. I worked with a, a, a Fortune 500 engineering company, and then a couple of years later, I moved to uh, a Fortune 500 healthcare company. I worked in a hospital and got to work with nurses and doctors and all the people who were literally saving lives every lives every day. And that was when I said, Wow, I've I've really helped build up these two programs and, you know, kind of like very very different almost polar opposite industries and that was when i decided i really wanted to work with as many different types of companies as possible and that's what i love about what i do and i you know you probably feel the same way which is every company is different no question um, mm. the industry the job type the size the culture the location but the principles that we practice and and teach our clients are are basically the same
1: okay well thank you for that tasha when we think about you know Working in these different areas, you're now developing leaders. Uh, I do. I do want to go back to one component: this idea of really having practical applications for psychology versus being an academic. Mm-hmm. I call it the academic abyss, where a person has never really gone out and had some practical uh, experience. What has really been your insight there? Before we get into your couple, your, the content of your books. Sure where there is this disconnect between the academia world and the practical world. Where where have you seen the gaps or the voids? Well,
0: I actually, uh, there are so many examples. I'll give you kind of a, a really important day-to-day discovery, and then I'll even segue into some of the work I do on self-awareness, and where I think that's a, a big problem. On a day-to-day level, you know, as a as a consultant, when I was in graduate school and I was working on all these kind of practicum projects, I would say something like, you know, to my client, "Could you please send me a list of your, you know, top-performing employees?" and uh, uh, you know, a week would go by, and two weeks, and three weeks, and four weeks, and I would say, "My goodness, this person must be the the poorest time manager on the face of the planet that they couldn't even think to send me these, you know, these names." And then I got into a company, and I, you know, I people were making those requests of me because we worked with, um, you know, partner vendor firms, and I would, you know, I go, "Oh my gosh, okay, well, I've got to get into our performance management system." Oh, but the guy who runs that, who can get me the data, is on vacation. And then when it comes back, none of the data is in the format that we need it to be. And so it it actually did end up, you know, a request like that can easily take four weeks. But on the consultant side, if you don't really understand what that day-to-day struggle and challenge and kind of Mm. tension looks like, it's really hard to be a good consultant because then you're not, you're actually not making their life easier. You're making their life more difficult. And that's what I, you know, and I think all of us pride ourselves on is, is knowing their world in a way mm. that will, that working with us will be additive to what they're doing. It will, it will give them a tremendous impact while respecting their time and making it as easy as possible on them. Um, so that was kind of, that was one of the biggest ahas for me when I went into the mm. Fortune 500 world. But when we go back to the gap, between academia and practice, it's really challenging to have, you know, it's like all of us in our own worlds are sort of breathing our own exhaust. And there are exceptions. There <laughs> are definitely...
1: Oh, Tasha, I love that. Yeah, know.
0: right. I mean, and, and, and there are professors who do uh, incredible consulting work. My my advisor in graduate school, Kirk Krager, runs this amazing um, I O startup firm, and he consults with companies. And he's the chair of a department, right? But but people like that are few and far between. And so what happens, at least from my perspective, is academics begin to research things, you know, that become more and more and more specific. And in many times less and less relevant to the work that we practitioners are doing. And I think, you know, the same is true for practitioners where um, there are so many opportunities to reach back into the empirical research and not just say, well, I'm saying this because it's what I think. Instead, you Mm. can say, I'm saying this because there's a tremendous amount of scientific evidence that suggests we should do this. Uh, But for self-awareness, just as an example, when I, about five or six years ago, when I first started digging into the scientific research on the topic, I was floored. Right? So in in the applied business world, people talk about self-awareness all the time. And it's a positive quality. It's something that, you know, everybody who works mm-hmm. in the business world who who you know is is savvy understands that knowing yourself, knowing how other people see you will help you be more successful. It'll help you be a better leader, a better contributor, um, even a better parent, a better spouse, a better partner. But when you go back to the research It really only started in the 1970s, but the way researchers were defining self-awareness were as um, almost a negative psychological state. They were looking at it kind of like, you know the idea when you go to a party and you don't know everyone and you feel really self-conscious That was more like the definition that the academicians were using for decades. Um, And so sort of looking at that disconnect and saying, well, how am I going to use any of this research to help leaders Mm -hmm. if it's not actually researching the the type of self-awareness that we're talking about in business? Um, So I think that's just such a great example of where if we would all just come together and talk, Mm -hmm. as with most
1: things, we would be in much better shape. Mm, thank you for that, Tasha. And sometimes life isn't as it appears, in both in business and academia. An example. Uh, yeah, exactly. A company that I know who won the award for one of the top 100 companies, managed companies in the country, just recently went through an entire blow-up of mismanagement, high employee turnover. turnover, And this is just in 24 months of getting the award. So, oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. So sometimes when you when you do the documentation or when it says, Oh, this is all going great. What's really going on deep inside is a completely different situation or data. So let's just jump into it, Tasha. You know, I appreciate sort of getting to know you and the listeners getting SOS listeners getting to know you and thank you for your enthusiasm on all of this. So your first uh, bestseller was uh, bankable, And now you have this book, Insights. And, of course, just for knowledge of the listeners, you know, CRG, we're an assessment company. And, you know, there's lots of times where you do, you know, Marshall's coaching process, which is interview style and stakeholder feedback. And we're, you know, we do personality, but we also do leadership skills or values. So we are just all over this idea of self-awareness. So get us into what drove you into Writing and what have have you discovered in the business world now as an industrial psychologist around this whole importance of self-awareness and what you have in your book, Insights?
0: Yeah, and again, I think this is probably something you guys see too. Um, I I have worked with so many executives in a coaching capacity who began the process, um, you know, Sometimes not even just unself aware but maybe even a little bit delusional, uh, you know, and I say that somewhat comically mm-hmm. but somewhat seriously <laughs> and and made the transformation through courage and hard work and support and and really committing to that process uh, who who came out the other end some of the most effective leaders i've ever had the pleasure of working with and I don 't want to oversimplify that, and we'll kind of probably go back and talk about it a little bit more but um, I saw that time and time again. You know, I, There's one, one leader I work with that I talk about pretty frequently. I, I use the name Steve to protect his real identity. He, mm-hmm. um, he, his employees, when I first started working for him, he, he was basically running the biggest division of um, a very large company and they were in free fall. He had, he had replaced someone who had caused um, a series of budget overruns. The business was not in good shape, it was kind of a change the the engine while the airplane is in the air situation and the CEO hired me to work with him because he was crashing and burning. His employees hated him. They thought he was a total jerk and he was under the impression that he was just the leader that the business needed to pull everything, you know, uh, to turn everything around. And um, By giving him feedback, by working with him, by helping him see a little bit more clearly who he was, what he valued, and probably most importantly, how his team saw him, he was able to make a transformation from, you know, I think there was at the high end, there were like five people in his division quitting just about every month because of him to having a, you know, and this didn't happen overnight, but to having a very highly engaged um, uh, function and, and leadership team and group of employees. So I started to ask myself, okay, we're having all these conversations about self-awareness. I think probably all of your listeners have read, you know, so many articles on the topic. But I found, or at least I I suspected, that a lot of what we were saying wasn't necessarily backed up by a whole lot of empirical research. That goes back to my passion for for the data and for saying, you know, Mm. what is really going on here scientifically? We've got all these platitudes, like, you know, just... Just you know, focus on yourself and ask yourself those deep questions. Ask yourself why you are the way you are. Or hey, just just get more feedback. You'll be more self-aware. And I started to look into the research as I mentioned earlier. And what I realized was we didn't actually know a heck of a lot about self-awareness in a real-world business context. So. I decided, you know, in retrospect, it was sort of naive, um, but my research team and I said, well, no one's really answered some of these questions. Why don't we try to answer them? And mm-hmm. we thought, you know, for example, like, okay, well, let's, let's start with the definition of self-awareness. What is self-awareness exactly? And I thought, well, you know, if we read a thousand journal articles and we, um, you know, survey, couple thousand people from around the world, and maybe we'll even find some people who didn't start out as self-aware, but who became self-aware. People like, you know, Steve, like my coaching client. We can kind of figure that out. It still took us a year, one year, to Mm -hmm. come up with an empirically rigorous definition of self-awareness. And I'm sure we'll talk about it. It sounds very simple, but what we discovered was there was so much heavy lifting that just hadn't been done. So when we started doing some of the heavy lifting and really you know diving into the data we discovered that there were so many commonly held assumptions about what it takes for leaders to be more self-aware that were actually mm-hmm. wrong and in fact doing some of them not only will it not help you be more self-aware it can sometimes hurt your self-awareness
1: and so that was what, when what i are wanted some examples, to examples, yeah. tasha
0: of those uh, got them wrong So probably the biggest one, um, and this is this deserves its own podcast episode because there's so much to it. But um, in a nutshell, the more we ask ourselves why about you know what we feel, what our motives are, why we're behaving the way we are, the less well we know ourselves. And you know that, that just sort of threw us Mm. completely for a loop because initially I I was measuring self-awareness by saying how much time do you spend reflecting on, you know, why you are the way you are. And I thought that was a positive thing. And we kept discovering <laughs> through many, many examples that the more people, more time people spend thinking about themselves, the less well they knew themselves. And beyond that, they were less happy. They were more depressed. They were more stressed, more anxious, less happy with their jobs, less happy with their relationships, less in control of their lives. And at that point, and this was pretty early on, I was like, oh, crap, maybe, maybe self-awareness isn't actually that helpful. Maybe it's what we want to avoid. Mm-hmm. And what we eventually discovered as we parsed it apart was it's not that introspection or self-reflection is a bad thing in and of itself. It's just that many of us are doing it completely wrong. And there are some very small changes we can make to change that. Um, but that's where I think knowing the details and the data is so important.
1: Awesome. So what are we doing wrong? Wh- what's the? Where's the the break point here where we need to shift and the listeners need to shift to say, okay, that type of self-awareness really, or as we've defined it before, isn't as effective or impactful as we thought. So how do we have to shift? Where do we move to? So let me give you a very
0: simple tool. Um, Again, there's a lot behind this, so we can delve into it a little more if you think it's helpful. But the, the, the problem with the questions most people ask themselves is that they're focused on the wrong thing. And I think the question why is really, you know, common wisdom suggests that that's the most effective introspective question you can say, well, why, why do I feel this way about this person, or why did I do that, or you know, why do I want to do this instead of this? And as it turns out, um, why questions not only are they um, not only do they lead to a false sense of confidence about the answer the answer we find is usually wrong. And I'll just give you a very, very quick example, and I think it's mm-hmm. kind of a funny one, but um, one of my favorite studies on this, in this area was done where it was two University of Michigan researchers who set up a card table outside of a Myers thrifty store um, in, in Ann Arbor. And they put four pairs of identical pairs of pantyhose on the table, and as people walked by, they would ask the people to come over and say, well, which one of these pantyhose do you prefer? Now, customer, um, or consumer research shows that people are most likely to prefer an item on the right side of a display, right? So if it's pairs A through D, D being on the right, they would pick D, and that's exactly what happened. They, the, the passers-by picked pair D, the one on the right, at a rate of four to one, okay? Well, I mean, they're remember, all identical identical pairs of pantyhose. And when the researchers asked them, "Um, thank you, ma'am, for that selection. Can you tell me why you chose pair D? Um, The the respondents were adamant. You know, they would say, well, can't you see? It's a better color, or the elastic is better, or, you Mm -hmm. know, it's just the quality of the fabric. And they were so adamant about it. And then when the researchers told them that they were actually four identical pairs of pantyhose, most of the participants refused to believe them. Mm. Now think about that corollary for, for each of us. We, basically what happens when we ask ourselves why is we, we look for an answer we settle on something that feels true that very often isn't, and then we have a false sense of confidence. So so imagine doing all this work, coming up with the wrong answer, and then holding on to it. Mm. That really explains why it can hurt us so much. And I think on top of that, there's a lot of evidence that why questions can cause rumination, which is the, the evil twin of introspection. It's when we're kind of constantly harping on our, our mistakes or our weaknesses or our missteps, rather than looking forward. So the, mm. so the better question we've discovered in our research um, is is what? So instead of, you know, why do I feel this way? Surprisingly, a better question is actually, what am I feeling? And the difference between those two questions in that instance is, um, you know, again, the why question is taking us backwards. It's, it's bringing us down. It's making us feel like we really can't... Um, Fix something that we're not empowered versus what am I feeling? That is concrete. It's practical. It it gives us real data to move forward. Another example um, from our research with these these highly self-aware people who didn't start out that way. um, I'll think of one example. So there was a gentleman who was very unhappy in his job, but instead of saying, "Why am I so unhappy?" He said, um, what are the patterns, what are the common situations that are making me unhappy Um, and what might that tell me about this job? So instead of getting into this poor me, kind of, oh, what am I going to do? He started looking at the data. And what he realized was that the primary functions of the job he was in were not fun for him. He didn't Mm. feel like he was good at them. And that gave him enough data to say, you know, I I probably do need to make a career change. And he did, and he loves his new profession. And I'm I'm sort of oversimplifying that. It obviously wasn't Mm -hmm. easy. But I think that those are some data points about why asking What is a far better question
1: than why. Well, it's interesting. Just to support you, Tasha, I've I've written a new book called The Quest for Purpose. And one of the comments in the book is that you don't need to know the why, you need to know the what. Amen. So um, I don't know why I love doing podcasts and having people like Tasha on the show and just enjoy getting into the brains of experts like yourself, but I do. So it doesn't matter why I like it. It matters that I do, and then what am I going to do about it? So thank you for, uh, you know, confirming that in your research. Because like you said, a lot of people have talked about self-awareness, but they really haven't put the data set behind it. Yeah, exactly. So with that, now in your book, when we think about your book, Insight, what are some of the other things in there? And share with the listeners who hopefully become readers of your book of what are some other insights in the book, of insights, pardon the pun, that the <laughs> listeners can go and use today right after this show?
0: Sure. So um, uh, let me just do a quick backtrack for 10 seconds to Absolutely. briefly give us uh, uh, the definition we arrived at with self-awareness because I think it helps me answer Please. the question for your listeners. So what we discovered is, is self-awareness is made up of two distinct independent sets of knowledge about ourselves. So one of them is is something we named internal self-awareness, which is um, what a lot of people think of when they hear that term. It's knowing um, you know, what, who you are inside, what, what are your values, what drives you, what are you passionate about, what's your personality, what are your patterns, uh, and, and so on. The second type of self-awareness that's just as important is something we named external self-awareness. And in a nutshell, what that means is knowing how other people see us. And fascinatingly, um, much to my surprise, we learned that just because you have one of those doesn't mean you have both. And so there are two independent types of self-knowledge that we need to be working on in tandem, essentially for our whole lives. And from my perspective, that's what makes it so exciting. Um, but maybe we'll get back to that. So the the what not why tool I just gave your listeners was really focused on internal self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do maybe now is just turn briefly to a tool they could use to have a better appreciation for how they're coming across. You know, and I'll, a lot of people this is funny. So when I'm doing mm-hmm. keynotes, which I do. A lot of. I love spreading the message. I'll ask the audience, how many of you have wondered how the people you lead or work with see you? And, you know, darn near about 100% of the hands go up. And then I ask, how many of you on a regular basis um, make the effort to get feedback from those people? And, you know, maybe 10% of the hands stay up. And and that's a really interesting That's a really interesting battle and tension, isn't it? Because we want to know, but we're scared to know. And that was one of the things we wanted to figure out is how can we get feedback from people and really keep our mojo intact, as Marshall would would say. So what we discovered when we were looking at these people, these highly self-aware people who didn't start out that way, is um, it was just as
1: important
0: who they asked as it was how they asked them.
1: So what, felt, uh, so I'm, I'm sure you're going to answer it, so why would it be important about who I ask? I thought that highly self-aware people would literally
0: get feedback from everyone and treat it all as important data. You know I, jokingly, I would say I expected them to ask their friends, their family, their employees, the person behind them in the in the line at the grocery store. <laughs> but but that actually wasn't true To a person. This group of individuals relied on usually five or less people that met two very difficult criteria. And uh, let me just give you those quickly and then I'll circle back to why that matters. So number one is they had to believe that that person had their best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. Full stop right? Everybody has that workplace frenemy or even that friend frenemy mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. you're not really sure where they're coming from, you know, maybe they want you to be successful, maybe they don't. Um, the, the folks that we studied unequivocally said that these people have to, have to want me to be successful and I have to have essentially complete confidence in that. The second characteristic is, is sort of it feels difficult to find both, which is they also had to believe that that person would tell them the truth whether it was good, bad, or very, very ugly. And those two things together, we we, um, borrowed a, a phrase from another leadership thinker, and we called them loving critics. So it's not enough for somebody to want you to be successful. It's not enough for somebody to be willing to be very, very critical of you. You have to have both. And what was interesting was how these people used their loving critics um, they a lot of them would very would sit down with them i 'm thinking of one r- research uh, participant who would take each person to coffee once a month and say, "Okay, this month I was working on you know say uh, my my public speaking skills. What can you tell me? You know How did I do in the last thirty days? What ideas do you have for me in the next thirty days now that 's not to say that they didn 't care about Mm -hmm. the other feedback that came to them. But when they got feedback from anyone else, they ran it through their loving critics. You know, everybody's gotten this before. I call it drive-by feedback, where it's some like shady Mm -hmm. character that you work with that says, hey, do you, you have a second? When you have a minute, could you stop by my office? I have some feedback I want to give you. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes it's really, it feels true and you say, thank you, thank you so much for that gift. And sometimes you go, I've never
1: heard that before.
0: I'm not saying it's not true, but that seems very fishy to me.
1: So I don't lose this idea. Is Do you know Dr. Dr. Alan Weiss who co-wrote the other book, uh, Lifestorming? Oh, my goodness. I cannot say enough great things about Alan Weiss. So Alan Alan and I, Alan mentored me 25 years ago. That's how far back we go. Very cool. You know, we always talked about, you know, uh, your opinion if I ask for it. You know, um, I don't really need it or want it. But everybody today in social media world has an opinion. (laughs) Very few people have wisdom. Yes. And I just find it fascinating that an individual will have some kind of comment about how to parent your child and they've never had children. This kind of thing that you're talking about. We seem to be in a culture of opinions, but not necessarily wisdom. So I'm just affirming what you're saying there. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Yeah, Alan is so pithy. He
0: just has all these great little nuggets of wisdom, and I I couldn't agree more. And I think – and that's why, you know, because – One area that I would maybe differ a little bit from Alan Weiss Mm -hmm. is um, the sort of unequivocal, just I'm not gonna listen to you if it wasn't feedback I asked for. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see where he's coming from, but from my perspective, I think there's a best of both worlds where Mm -hmm. if we get that drive-by feedback, it may be true. It may be completely made up. It may, you know, it may mm-hmm. be an opinion without wisdom. That's the beauty of the loving critics is they're almost your, your, your feedback board of directors where you can you know, just catch one of them on the fly. It doesn't have to be a formal thing and just say, hey, you know, can I ask you a question? Uh, somebody recently told me that I uh, interrupt other people a lot and I've never heard that. It doesn't feel true. Maybe you can set me straight. Have you seen me doing that? Mm. And then if it comes from your loving critic, um, you go, oh, okay, well, maybe that is something I need to look at. So it's it's just such a great way to filter things and to focus things. You don't have to, one of our research participants said, I get feedback all the time, but not from all the people. And that's that's what makes it manageable. That's what makes it Mm. easier, right? Because you get into sort of a pattern or a habit. And I think ultimately that's what gives us better data.
1: No, for sure. So what other uh, insights around the importance of self-awareness? One of the words we use, Tasha, and I'm not sure if there's a linkage to it, that self-awareness leads to self-mastery, where I'm in charge of self, where this consciousness goes to where now I'm intentional with my behavior, such as your Steve, where he obviously shifted in some way or manner to go from people hating him to people liking him. So where, where did the data land for proving the importance of self-awareness?
0: Yeah, so it, it's pretty compelling, actually. So let me just run through a laundry list, and I'll tell you this is not even scratching the surface. So people who are self-aware are better communicators. They, are, uh, they perform better in their jobs. They're more confident. They're more promotable they're better leaders, they're less likely to lie, cheat and steal. Um, they are better partners well, hang on. Where, in marriage think
1: that one came from.
0: Well, I think it goes where back F- to what F- you F- just F- said. Integrity came in. Yeah, into that. I think it comes back to what you just said is is if you're not pulling the wool over your own eyes, if you have clarified the values that drive the way you approach the world, you can't really lie to yourself. You know, I think so so much and and Very smart people, people who are smarter than me have figured this out, that a lot of unethical behavior starts with the best of intentions. You know, people don't think they're doing anything wrong. But I think when you are are working on your self-awareness and you're committed to that process Mm -hmm. of seeing yourself clearly, um, Mm -hmm. that self-deception is harder. You know, you kind of have to Mm -hmm. level with yourself and say, is this? Does this really mirror these values that I've spent great time and care outlining? No, it doesn't. So uh, to me, that makes a lot of sense, right? Why, why it helps us be the best version of ourselves, to use a cliche, mm-hmm. which I think is
1: very elegant as well. Um, yeah, so that would be my answer to that. Thank you, sorry, I interrupted your flow on that, but I just wanted to touch base because <laughs> that's, that's such an important thing in today's sort of business world, where in a lot of cases, the behavior is opposite of that. So better <laughs> communications, better leader, integrity, What were some other items on the it, well and, and
0: and even going I'll, I'll sort of pivot to the personal side, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but people who are self aware um, are better parents, they raise less narcissistic children, which anyone who's listening who doesn't want to raise narcissistic children should mm-hmm. listen um, <laughs> and then they're you know they're just better friends and better people in general. The, the most interesting thing though, if I go back to the organizational world, is there's some emerging and frankly pretty compelling evidence that Leaders who are more self-aware lead more financially profitable companies. And companies who are profitable tend to be made up of greater percentages of self-aware employees. So this is really interesting if we take a step back. It doesn't matter. You know, obviously the CEO has to be self-aware Again, period, mm. full stop. But it is equally important for you know, down to the front line. If you think right. about uh, you know, a professional services firm as an example, if the people in that firm at the front line who are interacting with their clients every day are not clear on who they are, what they stand for, how they're seen by others, there's no way uh, that the, basically there's going to be a limitation placed on their success and therefore the company's success. So, you know, it's funny, I, I, I talk to some people and they say, oh, self-awareness, oh, how interesting. And they sort of, you know, brush it off as, oh, that would be nice to have, we'll get around to it someday. But, but I believe, and, and I think the evidence is there, that there's a very compelling business case for developing mm. self-awareness. And that's why the smartest companies and, and, you know, the great clients that you and I get to work with are, are investing in this and they're seeing the returns.
1: Mm. It's interesting, you know, how you can link the two of those. When I did my MBA research, I did about 40,000 data points on just around motivation and performance in morale And the number one influencer of the morale of the team was the person they directly reported to. Mm -hmm. So that self-awareness is just carrying all the way downstream, as you've mentioned. Yep, exactly. So from there, what are some other things that we want to keep in mind? We have about seven minutes left, or so Tasha, somewhere seven or eight minutes. What are some other gems for the listeners today? Well, let me, maybe as we sort of
0: start to conclude, I think there's a really important um, sort of philosophical or or even just mindset decision that we have to make. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, okay, so these people that made these dramatic improvements in their their self-awareness, where did they start? What was the first thing they did? And what we uncovered was it was actually a decision, whether, you know, whether they had just been, fired from their job and they didn't know why, you know, there were a couple of people on our data set who, whose spouses abruptly left them, um, or whether it wasn't that traumatic, whether it was just saying, hey, you know, I, 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 I want to be more successful. I want to be more in touch with who I am and what I want and what will make me happy. Um, they made the choice to say, I understand that seeing myself with rose-colored glasses might be the easier choice in the short term. You know, it's kind of like, it's like refined sugar. We Mm -hmm. eat it, it makes us feel awesome, but in the long term, there are very, very serious health consequences that we're only beginning to understand. Mm -hmm. And I I sort of see, um, you know, rose-colored glasses the same way, is a lot of people live their lives without making this choice. And, you know, I I think everybody's in their own place in their journey, and that's not for any of us to judge. Sometimes it can be frustrating to work with people who are not committed to their Mm self-awareness. The beauty of this is that we all have this choice. Um, You know, our our research participants said, I am going to make a choice. It's going to require bravery, but I'm going to be wiser, and I'm going to be able to achieve all these benefits that we've been talking about. So we call it braver but wiser mindset.
1: Braver, but wiser mindset. Mindset.
0: And that is a really important point. And people, you know, it's not as simple as just making it one day and then having it be there for the rest of your life. It's, you know, what, what they taught me is it's a choice that each of us have to make every day. And so I'll sort of bookend this. So that's the beginning of the journey. Um, somebody once I was doing it was a really big group of people, It was like 3,000 people. Um, I was doing a, a keynote, and we had a Q and A session. And somebody kind of tentatively, you know, walked up to the mic and said, um, "Can I just ask you? So I've been working on my self awareness for you know was 20 or 30 years, and I'm so tired. When?" am I done now? Can I be done?
1: <laughs>
0: and everybody laughed and I laughed and I totally understood what she was saying. They were making and, it a
1: burden, weren't they? Yeah. Wait,
0: wait, that's a really good point too. Actually, I, I want to come back to that because I think that's important what you just said. But what we learned from our research subjects is um, the search for self awareness never ends. And you can look at it as a burden. You know, you can mm-hmm. say, Oh my God, it's so much work, blah, blah, blah. But, The other thing we know is it doesn't have to be an extremely time-consuming activity. And that's where, you know, we provide a lot of hacks or shortcuts in the book that will help people um, get more insight with less time invested. But that's what I actually think is so exciting about it is it's this lifelong journey. You know, we could be uh, any age at any point Mm -hmm. and feel like we've learned everything about us that there is to know and we can get a gem. You know, my friend Alan Malawi who turned around Ford Motor Company and Boeing Commercial calls those gems. This thing that I didn't know in the past that I now know that gives me the choice to act on it, to mm-hmm. be more successful, to be happier, to make better choices. And so that was my answer to her, is that we shouldn't look at that as a burden. You know, to your point, I think we should look at it as just a, it's, it's, it's like exploring space. You know, the, the, the more we know, the more we know there is to know. And,
1: and that's what makes it such an exciting, lifelong journey. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Tasha, as far as it's an opportunity and it's taking that same side of that coin, is that a burden or is it an opportunity to be freer, to be clearer, to be more grounded, more centered, <clears throat> more alive? As, you know, Our work around purpose, life purpose, is that the more clarity that I have, which comes out of that self-awareness, the more empowered I am. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I think that's really well said. <laughs> and confusion leads to doubt or confusion leads to frustration, all those things that come into that. Now, Tasha, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, but before we get there, how can people find out about your work and or order your book?
0: So uh, instead of making it about me, uh, I'm going to make it about them, about your listeners. So if you are listening to this and you're intrigued and you're thinking, you know, the next logical question is, well, how self-aware am I? By the way, one statistic I didn't share that is relevant here is that 95% of people think they're self-aware and only 10 to 15% 15 of us actually are. And that's a pretty stunning number. Oh, isn't that? Yeah, so wow. let's let's all just sit with that for a minute. What I'm going to tell you is I'm there with you. <laughs> I had a very big personal discovery that I was not as self-aware as I thought I was. But it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's January 2nd. It's like getting on the scale to start a diet. We've got to know where we are now with our self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And so to help people do that, we've created a free quiz. It's a subset of our 70-item, you know, full-blown self-awareness assessment. But it takes five minutes. You fill out 14 questions, um, and then you send the assessment to someone who knows you well, they fill out 14 questions and you get this really cool report back that kind of gives you a snapshot of where you are and a couple of tools to to start your journey. So if anyone's interested in taking that, it's totally free, no strings attached. We just want to make the world a more self-aware place. They can go to insight-quiz.com.
1: insight-quiz.com.
0: And then that links to everything else, so, you know, everything you could ever want to know about me, and probably
1: more. Um, but I, I really want to focus on the value for the listeners. Well, thank you for that gift. Um, I mean, listeners, make sure you take advantage of that. I know it does; it is going to take that one word called courage <laughs> that you were talking about. When we think about this gap between ninety-five percent think they know themselves, and only really ten or fifteen percent are connected to reality or the truth or what's really going on, why so much, man? This is a chasm. <laughs> this is a Grand Canyon. Oh, why? Oh, we need a
0: whole other episode for that. But basically, we are, we are built to overlook uh, the truth, and not in a bad way, but, you know, you think about it, the, I can't remember the exact number, but I think the average person encounters like 50 million data points every day, you know, yeah. fifty things going on. And, and we have to filter some of it out or we, our brains would explode. Um, but with that comes a lot of challenges with, with ignoring things that should be apparent. And we also live in a world that is tempting, taunting us <laughs> to become more self-absorbed and less self-aware. And mm. so if you put those two things together it's no wonder so many of us have work to do and, and again it doesn't make us bad people and the beauty of it is at any time we can make that choice to see ourselves more clearly uh, and I think that's, that's probably a good thing to leave your listeners with is, is you have the power you have the choice um, and it's, it's up to
1: us mm. well Pasha we could spend you are right we could do like several more podcasts this is what the space we love So thank you for taking the time and hanging out with us and encouraging us to really take a serious look at our self-awareness levels and how we see it and the perspectives. And thanks for writing the book, Insight. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. So listeners, this is Dr. Tasha. Now, Tasha, how do we say your last name correctly? It's Yurik. Yurik. So Tasha spent the time with us. Now you take this content and go to the next level. Stand up and be courageous. You know, it's hard for both Tasha and I. We're, we might teach it, but we have to live it every day. I imagine that if I was to get my wife on this program, she would be able to give us some examples of where I am not self-aware. <laughs> and, and I oppose Tasha, there's something around you. So my encouragement is that we've stepped up. That the first step is to simply make that decision, as Tasha has shared with us. And the next one from there is to have the courage to go forward. And if there's this gap that 95% of us think we have it together and really around 10 do, then the odds are that we're one of the other, the percentage in between. So my encouragement, get Tasha's book, Insight. Go take your quiz, -quiz insight-quiz.com, and be able to take yourself to the next level. As always, we encourage you as SOS listeners, if you like what we're doing, please share it subscribe to the show if you're listening for the first time and you haven't subscribed yet leave a positive review let other people know about the work that we're doing here thank you as always for listening I'm your host Dr. Ken Keyes